Radio Netherlands presents Portraits of the Artist, our changing image of Rembrandt through the ages. Bankrupt, buried in an unmarked grave, estranged from friends and patrons, Rembrandt van Rijn is often seen as a misunderstood genius. While his patrons are depicted as jeering Philistines, the painter of the Night Watch is portrayed as a lone hero, as in this 1936 British film classic. In the name of their lordships, I request you to unveil Rembrandt von Rhein's masterpiece. <laughs> you surely don't expect us to take this as serious art? You undertook to paint a good, satisfactory picture for our mess room. But this, this thing, is, it, it's a monstrosity. Look at it for yourself. Is that supposed to represent the officers of the noble civic guard? A collection of gentlemen? Do those look like gentlemen of rank and position? I wasn't trying to paint gentlemen of rank and position. I wanted to paint men, soldiers, a company marching out. Well, this is an infamous myth which has been retold over and over again. But we only know what he got for that huge painting, which was 1,600 guilders, an enormous amount of money. But we don't know what the, the, the portrayed thought about it. Whether they liked it or not, we don't know. So everything that has been written about this or shown in, in films is fantasy. The only remark that could be interpreted as criticism was published in 1678 by Rembrandt's pupil Samuel van Hoogstraten at the end of an extraordinary piece of praise for that painting. He said that painting is so lifelike that it makes its other companion paintings look like figures on playing cards. He was crazy about that painting, but then he says, but I wish he, he had lit up a little more light in it. But the overwhelming reaction to the Night Watch was uh, positive, as far as we can tell. Gary Schwartz is a prominent Dutch-based American art historian and the author of several books on 17th century Dutch painting, including a recent new study called The Rembrandt Book. Rembrandt by the time he was 25, was a millionaire through his art. He was getting the richest commissions available in the country from the court of the stadtholder in The Hague. He was getting uh, fees of 600 guilders, a painting at a time when the average income was 300 guilders. So he really was a, a yuppie. He was a really wealthy young man on the rise when he came to first The Hague and then to Amsterdam. And he knew it. And his fame spread quickly within the Netherlands and abroad, even within his own lifetime. Dr. Eddie de Jong is Professor Emeritus of Art History. During his lifetime, he had a great reputation. And very soon after he started working, actually, for instance, the British King Charles I had a self-portrait already in, in the... 1630s, which was very early. And the Medici in Florence had two self-portraits also. 
But Rembrandt was also famous because of his etchings, and his etchings went all over Europe, and they were very much appreciated and, and followed by other artists. What his contemporaries admired was no doubt the quality of his work. And what he was most highly praised for was the quality of evoking emotions. They were very unembarrassed, 17th century writers, about reducing artists to one soundbite. They would say, uh, Raphael is the artist of grace, and Titian is the artist of color. And uh, when they got around to Rembrandt, they would say, Rembrandt is the artist of emotion. They even said that he had an uncanny ability to fix in his mind the fleeting emotions on people's faces. But there were shadows in Rembrandt's golden career. His most important early patron, the scholar and connoisseur Constantin Huygens, even wrote a poem mocking Rembrandt's failure to etch a faithful likeness of his brother's friend, Jacques de Gein. Constantin Huygens was Rembrandt's key link to the court of stadtholder Frederick Hendrik. It was unwise to alienate these people, yet the scholar and the artist took a distance from each other for reasons we do not know. For my new book, I did a tally of the conflicts in Rembrandt's life. I put them all into a database, and one of my fields was conflict-related, yes or no. And it turned out that there were 25 different instances in Rembrandt's life of conflict situations. One of these issues was the refusal on the part of a patron who later became a burgomaster of Amsterdam, mm -hmm. the most powerful men in the city, to take ownership of a portrait that Rembrandt painted of him. And Rembrandt took him to court on it. So Rembrandt's rebarbativeness certainly influenced his relations with patrons and affected the level at which he could be patronized by the city. There were several occasions when officials passed Rembrandt by for important projects, such as the frescoes for the Stutholder's Palace in The Hague. And the most prestigious project of its day, the Amsterdam Town Hall, had only one Rembrandt, as an afterthought, and that was removed after some time. The Town Hall uh, was first given completely to Rembrandt's pupil, Hovart Flink, uh, and when he died... Rembrandt was given the number one slot immediately afterwards, so he was not being being shut out. That it was later taken down may have had to do with lack of proper protection at Town Hall. I think if he had a good, solid burgomaster standing up for his interests, that wouldn't have happened. So in that sense, it could be a result of his failure to network, his failure to build up a patronage base when everybody in the 17th century needed one. And in turn, this had to do with personality problems. Actually, we don't exactly know why, but we think that the burgomasters who gave him the commission didn't like the style and the way he, he handled the commission. Claudius Civilis, the, the central figure, was painted by Rembrandt with one eye, and uh, that was something which was probably was not very much liked. From the time Rembrandt picked up his brush 
there was always a group of Rembrandt followers in the world. And this remained so through the late 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. There are always artists who have been inspired more by Rembrandt than anyone else and who produce work in his style or in his spirit. Now, of course, throughout these hundreds of years, that has not always been the dominant style. People who adhere to the classicist style were rather critical about Rembrandt's uh, production and what he, what he made. There are a number of famous writers who have written quite critical about Rembrandt. They criticized that he snapped his finger at the rules of art, that he used paint in a way they didn't like. And his attitude, his social attitude, he had social connections with common people. By the 18th century, however, Rembrandt was firmly on his way to becoming a prestigious collector's item. His paintings graced the walls of the rich and famous in France and Germany, and especially in Britain. Sir Joshua Reynolds, head of the Royal Academy, painted a self-portrait in Rembrandt's style. The Dutch master was especially coveted by the crowned heads of Europe, like Russian Empress Catherine the Great, who dispatched art raids into Western Europe and snatched up the Gotskowski collection right under the nose of Frederick the Great of Prussia. These were part of major cultural trawling campaigns by Catherine the Great. She was simply the most aggressive single collector in the history of mankind. And that she got a lot of Rembrandts in her nets is not a surprise. She went for the most prestigious collections of uh, old master painting that she could find in England and in France and in Germany. So in 1860, the Hermitage was set to have 43 Rembrandts, the most of any collection in the world. Irina Sakalova is curator of Dutch painting at the Hermitage in St. Petersburg. Enige echte kunstliefhebbers. A few true art lovers like Count Stroganov appreciated the smaller, finer paintings, and he bought the Prophet Jeremiah in France, now in the Rijksmuseum collection. For Catherine, collecting was a kind of art policy. Naturally, she wanted the most famous masterpieces, the Dutch masters from the time of Peter the Great. It was the favorite art of Russian collectors, and this lasted a long time. Nineteenth-century Russians had a particular weakness for Rembrandt's late style, particularly the portraits of old men and women and of exotic Oriental types. Russian love for Rembrandt spilled over into romantic poetry, for example, in Mikhail Lermontov's poem To the Picture of Rembrandt. I see the image that's half shown but strongly and abruptly marked. Is that a runaway, well-known in holy cassock of a monk? Maybe his mind, so high and sound, was murdered by a hidden crime. All's dark behind. With pine and doubt his gaze burns, chilly and sublime. Ik denk dat 19e eeuw maakte een heel speciale 
beeld van Rembrandt. I think the 19th century had a very special view of Rembrandt that fit in well with the Russian preference for a Dostoevsky-like psychologically complex view of the world. Well into the 20th century, you see this, for example, in the Second World War. When she was in exile in Tashkent, far from Leningrad, the great poet Anna Akhmatova, for example, wrote of the dark Rembrandtesque corners of the room. In the Romantic Age, Rembrandt had many admirers in France, the poet Baudelaire, the painter Delacroix, and the writer Victor Hugo. In Germany, the great poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe chose an etching by Rembrandt for the title page of the first edition of his masterpiece, Faust. What was criticized in the 17th century was turned into his advantage in, in the 19th century, especially in France, uh, around 1840, 1850, uh, with the avant-garde of, of that time. People who were anti-Catholic, who were Republicans, and they projected their own ideas in Rembrandt. They saw him as a kindred spirit. Rembrandt's lifelikeness even his character, his independence, even his rebelliousness, his inability to get on with society were seen in the period of the uh, revolutionary movement leading up to 1848 as a positive model for uh, French artists and French political activists. He's then a modern master and the only legitimation for realist art, for the art that goes against the academy and against the salon. That's the, the big Rembrandt in the 19th century, the romantic Rembrandt. So the painter of the soul, the man who, who sees that all humans are equal, he will paint the blacks, he will paint the prostitutes, he will paint the, the carpenter. His holy family is living on an attic. It's very much that sort of sentiment and engagement with society, with life, which is the 19th century Rembrandt. Peter Hecht is professor of art history at the University of Utrecht. You're tuned to Portraits of the Artist, a Radio Netherlands documentary about Rembrandt. Professor Hecht is the curator of an exhibition about the links between Rembrandt and another great Dutch painter, Vincent van Gogh. There's no artist mentioned so frequently in Vincent's letters, and the interest for Rembrandt goes a lifelong. So it starts very early, even before Vincent decided he wanted to be a painter, and it goes on till his very last letters, two months before his suicide. So Rembrandt has been a presence in his life as an artist and also as an individual whom he respected, uh, as a Christian, in the time he wanted to be a preacher, he thought nobody had done the gospel so well as Rembrandt. Nothing brought it so close to him, made it so likely and plausible, supernatural things looking natural with Rembrandt and with nobody else. Uh, in the time that he was trained to be a preacher, he goes to the museum an awful lot and very interestingly also tells Theo this is the thing to come and see. The Jewish bride, how intimate it is. What an incredibly attractive painting, done by a hand of fire. He went towards the very highest, the infinite, when he did not have to be true to the literal, as in a portrait, when he was allowed to be lyrical, a poet, that is, a creator. That's what he is in The Jewish Bride. When Vincent saw The Jewish Bride at the Rijksmuseum in the 1880s, it was one of only four Rembrandts in Amsterdam. 
most Rembrandts had been sold abroad. But with the rise of a new sense of Dutch national pride in the 19th century, the Netherlands reclaimed Rembrandt as a symbol of Dutch glory. It was only when the Belgians separated themselves from the newly founded kingdom of the Netherlands and called on Rubens to take the lead and being their great cultural hero, their representative to the world, that the Dutch felt that it was time uh, to push Rembrandt forward. So in 1840, the Belgians put up a grand statue of Rubens in Antwerp, and uh, immediately the Dutch began work on putting up a statue of Rembrandt. It was launched with the deliberate and quite outspoken and totally unashamed aim of turning Rembrandt into a national cultural hero in competition with Rubens. In Flanders they have Rubens and here they have Rembrandt and they used to be on a par in historiography and then you see that Rubens becomes a slave who works for the court, is a Catholic, is a courtier Rembrandt's the man of the people and so on but for Holland and Flanders they are the national gods in that secular religion Rembrandt here Rembrandt hero worship continued well into the 20th century. Operas and cantatas and major symphonic works have been composed in his honor. 350 years after his birth, we commemorate Rembrandt Harmanzoon van Rijn. Born at Leiden on July the 15th, 1606, the son of a miller. Rembrandt was even claimed by others as an artist who was not necessarily only Dutch. Oh, yes, yes. There were German authors who found Rembrandt a sort of a, a Teuton or a German artist, which was connected to the uh, general idea of the Netherlands, the Low Countries, as being a part of the great German Reich, in fact, which started in the 19th century and which was followed up in, in, in the 20th century. Rembrandt was a, an example, uh, his art, of a new order and ancient German virtues. And that idea was later in, in the Nazi time repeated and repeated. During their occupation of the Netherlands, the Nazis declared July 15th Rembrandt Day to distract attention away from the national holiday, the birthday of the exiled queen. The Nazis commissioned an opera about Rembrandt and a film that portrays Rembrandt as the victim of Jewish plots to rob and ruin him. So there was a Russian and a French and a German Rembrandt, an 18th and a 19th century Rembrandt, a Nazi Rembrandt, and even a Marxist Rembrandt. Oh, yes, yes. In Marxist theory in the 30s, great artists were often seen as proto-communists and 
the kindred spirits of the Marxists themselves. So this goes for Rembrandt also. The regents were the bad guys, and Rembrandt, who was a, a pure character, was the good guy. So he was contrasted to the people who had power and seen more or less as a Marxist rebel. And in the United States, Americans created their Rembrandt too. There is nothing good, nothing endearing about him to be found anywhere. American novelist Joseph Heller, author of Catch-22, wrote a novel called Picture This in the late 1980s. It was inspired by a Rembrandt painting called Aristotle Contemplating the Bust of Homer. For Heller, the painting was his peg for a political message. It was not the painter, it was not the painting, it was the uh, confluence of the figures in the painting with the painter, Rembrandt, living in a commercial society, and the commercial society of, of America today. And in doing the research, I learned how Aristotle felt about commerce and money and how Plato felt about it as well. And it was the, the learning about the Dutch society in the 17th century, remarkable economic uh, vitality of, of the Dutch, and placing it as a warning into our own times, the dominance of, of financial ambition over all other forms of ambition within a nation and, and within a society, and even among most individuals. Aristotle contemplating the bust of Homer was bought by the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York in 1961 for over $2 million, a record price on the world art market. By the end of the 20th century, Americans owned a quarter of all the Rembrandts in the world. Part of it had to do with what has been called Holland mania, and that is that there was a time in American history, which we've forgotten, when not England, but Holland was seen as the motherland, as the country from which the Americans came and on which they modeled themselves. This had to do with the Dutch being of low church rather than high church, of their being country people rather than city people, republicans rather than royalists. And there was a kind of disdain for England in favor of Holland. In this period, Rembrandt's gentlemen painted in their sober black costume became more attractive models to American millionaires in their own self-image than the fancy Van Dyke-like English aristocrats who also were always collected, but still the, the Rembrandts provided a uh, model that they liked to compare themselves with. From the homes of Dutch patricians, English aristocrats, Russian czars, and American tycoons, Rembrandt has also found his way into popular culture. Superstar Barbara Streisand turned to Rembrandt for inspiration when she directed her first film, Yentl. Actually, I came to look at um, the Rembrandts in person when I was about to direct Yentl. I had a little bet with my cinematographer, David Watkin, because um, he was talking about the contrast being black and white, and I, because I told him I saw it as a Rembrandt painting, that kind of lighting. I wanted to see the Rembrandts in person, so I, I flew to Amsterdam, and, and what one sees is that his paintings are very much brown, dark brown rather than black, 
and also that the edges are soft. You know, the, the oil is diffused around the edges of the faces. It's not a hard, sharp line. So I could say to him, nope, I saw them in person, and that's the kind of color and contrast I want, you know? The dramatic events of Rembrandt's life and individual paintings have been the subject of many a novel, from pulp fiction to some pretty decent literature, and from Edith Wharton to Sadie Smith and her recent novel On Beauty, in which two rival art history professors hold opposing views of Rembrandt. Under the blackboard, Smith was postergumming a reproduction of Rembrandt's Dr. Nicholas Tulp, demonstrating the anatomy of the arm, 1632, that clarion call of an enlightenment not yet arrived, with its rational apostles gathered around a dead man, their faces uncannily lit by the holy light of science. The left hand of the doctor, raised in explicit imitation, also Howard would argue to his students, of the benefactions of Christ, the gentleman at the back staring out at us, requesting admiration for the fearless humanity of the project, the rigorous scientific pursuance of the dictum, Nosce te ipsum, know thyself. Howard had a long shtick about this painting that never failed to captivate his army of shopping day students, their new eyes boring holes into the old photocopy. Howard had seen it so many times, he could no longer see it at all. Ja, nou zien we in ieder geval uh, wat op het beeldscherm. Een deeltje zoekend. Ja, volgens mij hebben we daar het uh, verfschuffeltje. In the age of science and technology, Rembrandt has become the object of thorough technical analysis. Here, some Dutch scientists are discussing amino acids in a chemical scan of paint from the sleeve of the groom in The Jewish Bride. They are part of the Rembrandt Research Project, which was set up 20 years ago. But of course, the most uh, fascinating uh, area in the painting is this area that suggests a certain fabric, we don't know what, like gold brocade-like fabric, which seems to be imitated by this uh, rough surface. Uh, the aim of the binding medium project is to see whether this variation in pictorial effects has also a technical background and whether uh, Raymond diversified the substance of his paint deliberately by additions of certain materials to his binding medium or his paint uh, to reach these effects. The Raymond Research Project has taken a very scientific approach and they're working with several people from the natural sciences which was hardly done ever before and what well, is it's it's a, a big affair and that in itself says a lot about a reputation of of Rembrandt there's no artist in the world who who is given that great attention Using sophisticated equipment and state-of-the-art technology, the Rembrandt Research Project has been examining every single painting purported to be a Rembrandt. Before the project began, roughly 600 paintings were attributed to Rembrandt. The project has reduced that number now to about 300. The project found that many so-called Rembrandts were actually made by his pupils or were only touched up or partly done by the master himself. 
And this in turn has raised the question, what can we now say is truly a Rembrandt? Gary Schwartz. What happens is that criteria for Rembrandt in this change. It isn't as if we're getting that much new information, that much new insight. What happens is that one generation thinks that a Rembrandt is a painting that brings about the Rembrandt feeling, that has the warmth and the humanity and the depth of psychology that only Rembrandt could give to a painting, and then all sorts of paintings that somehow manage to create that effect get to be called Rembrandts. Uh, and at another extreme, the Rembrandt Research Project looks with a magnifying glass at every last stroke on the canvas and says a Rembrandt is only a work that is executed with exactly this degree of control and of mastery and of interest in every last millimeter of, of surface quality and so forth. Well, these are totally uh, different conceptions of what Rembrandt is. So we've been in the thrall of a competing and uh, successive concepts of Rembrandtness, and this has not come to an end. You've been listening to Portraits of the Artist. The program was produced and presented by Marijke van der Meer. This has been a Radio Netherlands presentation.